0: But uh, yeah, I don't know how. How's uh, how's everything at your end? You're back in the city now.
1: Yeah, it's quite remarkable. So I've been out of the continent for over two months. And I just got back to the Michael and us spiritual hometown of Toronto, just at exactly the moment that Luke left town. You are not in Halifax. You're two hours from Halifax.
0: Where are you? What are you doing there? I'm in the middle of nowhere, uh, where it's uh, very beautiful. Yeah, it's just uh, western Nova Scotia, I suppose. Southwestern Nova Scotia. My mom's been out here for the past year. year and a half. My brother as well. Yeah, it's nowhere near Halifax, but uh, that's where we landed a few days ago. And um, yeah, just kind of taking it easy. You know, I still, still have to work, uh, which I confess I'm finding it a little more difficult to do than I was hoping. You know, sometimes being in a new space can be very conducive to creativity and inspiration. Uh, this apparently is not one of those times I don't know how writing is for you, but for me, I'm very routine-based. I'm very habit-based. I have a a workspace at home that I've cultivated pretty meticulously. I have my habits. Uh, I don't know. I find being away from those things, uh, it's harder to make inspiration strike. It may also have something to do with it being, you know, uh, a ways into December now. And just uh, my body and mind have never accommodated themselves to the fact that, like, when you're an adult, you don't just get, like a whole month or six weeks off around this time of year. You kind of just have to keep going. Uh, I am planning to take some time off soon, but, uh, I don't know. It's been a it's been a busy year, and I'm finding, uh, you know, the amount of inspiration, the amount of creativity I have is sometimes finite, and I was certainly feeling that today. But it's very beautiful in Nova Scotia. I mean, I've I've been to Halifax before, but never really properly to the province as a whole. And uh, I mean, it it just fits every stereotype. Very nice people. Lots of uh, really pretty little towns around here. Old towns, uh, looking the ocean with old forts and old lighthouses, incredible breweries. Uh, I've had uh, some of the best stouts and porters out here that I think I've, I've ever had. Uh, it's a reminder that in Ontario, we have the most, I don't know, anachronistic and just like plain stupid temperance era laws around uh, the alcohol you can buy and, and you know when and where you can drink it. Much more chill and relaxed out here. So from a relaxation standpoint, great. From the standpoint of, uh, you know, getting work done, uh, not so much. But as a result of me being out here, you, uh, you arrived home to find the Gore Lieberman Studios empty.
1: Yeah, I came straight from the airport, uh, suitcase in hand, coming off a nine-hour flight ready to create content. Uh, but uh, instead, after, after uh, camping out for a day or two, I eventually decided to go home. Yeah, it's it's been nice being back in Toronto. I mean, I was just in Berlin for quite a while and I don't know if you've had the experience, if if you've ever gone anywhere. Uh, like a famous place or an exotic place or anything like that, where you're seeing very iconic things every day, very historic things every day. And then you return and you're back on your kind of <laughs> shitty street in Toronto. <laughs> you know, you're, de- and you're, feels... you're
0: describing, uh, there's, that, there's that amazing scene in uh, that episode of The Sopranos where they all go to Italy. And, you know, for them, it's like, you know, they're going to see the motherland and it's like this huge deal and everything is just sprinkled with stardust for them there. And then they get home and they're driving back down like the New Jersey Turnpike or something, and they're just looking at all the strip malls and liquidation stores. There's such a bleakness to that. So I guess you've just, you've been experiencing the the Toronto equivalent.
1: A little bit. I mean, when I was taking the train from downtown Berlin to the airport, you know, I was able to look outside and see like their version of the shitty streets, uh, you know, where, where, I don't know, Germans go to whatever the German Walmart equivalent is. So I appreciated seeing, oh, okay, not not every single thing is iconic in Europe there are more functional spaces there are less glamorous spaces where just normal people live and do normal things uh, like we do uh, the problem is in Toronto the whole city is just made up of normal things <laughs> unless you count the CN Tower
0: <laughs> it's fu- it's funny though because you know when Europeans come to North America they experience their own sense of wonder but for them it's like they're getting away from all the like beautiful old architecture and like all the, all the historic landmarks like for them the sense of wonder is conjured by arriving somewhere where like most things have been built in the last, you know, I don't know, 100 years, like something that's 200 years old actually counts as pretty old in North America. I can think of like my English cousins arriving in North America and just like being fascinated that you know the cities tend to have discernible downtowns that are very built up that you can see from you know miles and miles away. It's like you flew back into Toronto and you saw the skyline with you know the Scotiabank building and the CN Tower and you thought oh well you know here I am again you know driving from Lester Pearson past all the shitty strip malls and stuff but like when my cousins fly into Toronto and they see the same skyline they think they're looking at the Emerald City. <laughs> well
1: uh, I can assure Sure them that they are wrong. Uh, nevertheless, so it's nice to be back in Toronto. Nice to see my friends again. Nice to collect my mail. Nice to see my little puppy again. There are definite benefits.
0: Well, I've got a story of interest I want to share with you off the top here. This concerns something I wrote about a bit earlier this year. Uh, namely NFTs. This specifically has to do with the uh, the Bored Ape uh, NFTs, which were, I guess you, it's fair to say, pretty much synonymous with the whole uh, NFT phenomenon. This was the Bored Ape Yacht Club uh, NFTs. And people uh, may have remembered. And you have about... some
1: investment tips for <laughs> us.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. I want to talk to you all about a very exciting uh, opportunity, which uh, cool people are talking about, and you're not going to want to miss it. I don't know. People may have memory hold this, but uh, earlier this year, it was back at the end of January, uh, there was this very bizarre segment on the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon where you know Paris Hilton was on there and you know the two of them have this very I don't know awkward and strange back and forth I mean you know if you haven't seen it I, I would recommend looking it up and watching a, you know watching a few minutes of it
1: Since then Forbes has named you one of the 50, top uh, 50 most influential people in the NFT space so congrats on that Thank you know uh, what you're doing. Thank you. I'm so proud. I love being part of this community and being a voice and sharing my platform and just getting the word out there because I think it's just such an incredible thing to be a part of. Yeah, I, I got I, I jumped in. I know, I heard. I'm I, so happy I taught you what they were. You did. You taught me what's <laughs> up, and then I bought an ape. I got an ape too, because I saw you
0: on the show with people and you said you got a moon pay, so I went and I copied you and did the same thing. You did? hmm This is your this that's is your mine. ape. Yeah, it's really cool. Like the hat, the shades. And what? Um, I mean, I remember people joking around at the time that, you know, it seemed like this was like a hostage situation or something. There's just something uncannily strange about this back and forth. Like it it seems like, uh, you know, scripted banter or something. They're doing a sort of, uh, you know, infomercial for NFTs. But, you know, the whole thing is under the guise of like, it's just this, you know, really, really cool opportunity, this cool community that I'm really excited to be a part of. Um, And, you know, they go back and forth for a while. And then I think at the end of it, you know, Paris Hilton did uh, her own version of the oprah giving everyone a car where like everybody got an nft i can't remember if it was a a board yacht nft uh anyway uh the hollywood reporter broke the story a few days ago that uh, there's now a class action lawsuit against a number of these a-list celebrities for misleading their followers into buying nfts i want to read a bit from this piece in mashable by matt binder jimmy fallon paris hilton and a slew of celebrities sued over promoting board ape yacht club nfts Who can forget the cringeworthy interview on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon earlier this year, where host Fallon and Paris Hilton gushed over their Bored Ape Yacht Club NFTs. Well, that Tonight Show segment is now part of a class-action lawsuit against dozens of celebrities who promoted Bored Ape Yacht Club NFTs along with its parent company, Yuga Labs. According to the two plaintiffs who filed the complaint, Yuga Labs, quote, schemed with celebrities like Fallon, Hilton, Madonna, Kevin Hart, Justin Bieber, and Snoop Dogg in order to artificially pump up the price aboard Bored ape Yacht NFTs and defraud the fans who invested. Uh, the suit was filed in a federal district court in Los Angeles on December 8th. The plaintiffs are looking for at least $5 million for themselves and others who were affected. Uh, others named include Gwyneth Paltrow, Post Malone, Stephen Curry, and Serena Williams. Now, uh, another name that's at the center of this, uh, just a continue reading from Matt Binder here, particular standout uh, being sued is Guy Osiri, talent manager for Madonna, U2 and other musical superstars. Osiri is a partner in Yuga Labs and also manages a number of celebrities involved in promoting Bored Ape NFTs. In addition, Osiri is an investor in MoonPay, a crypto payment platform that has basically acted as a concierge service for many celebrities' uh, NFT transactions. And that multi-level relationship, uh, stringing everything together, is at the heart of the complaint. The plaintiffs say Oziri recruited celebrities he had a relationship with and Yuga Labs paid them to endorse Bored Ape Yacht NFTs through MoonPay. Those celebrities would go on and promote Bored Ape NFTs to their fans without disclosing the arrangement. For example, that very Tonight Show segment with Fallon and Hilton showing off their NFTs and talking about why they purchased them is explicitly described in the lawsuit. So there's a few things to be said about this. I mean, you know, it's not a story, of course, that, you know, celebrities have been a big part of, you know, the whole uh, crypto NFT uh, shilling racket over the past year. I mean, there were all those ads at the Super Bowl. You know, there was, uh, you know, Matt Damon saying, you know, fortune favors the bold or fortune favors the brave, whatever it is.
1: My favorite example of this, by the way, was uh, Mr. Steven Seagal, just to foreshadow the main subject of our episode a little bit, was recently ordered to pay two hundred thousand dollars by the u.s securities and exchange commission because he endorsed some cryptocurrency called bitcoin to Gen. that's bitcoin <laughs> with two eyes, to Gen. he endorsed it but was on the payroll of whatever company that was so would you believe it even steven Se- even steven seagal is corruptible <laughs>
0: Yeah, my God, is nothing sacred. Anyway, there have been all kinds of very high profile celebrity endorsements of various, you know, NFTs and, and cryptocurrency related things. And what's being alleged in this lawsuit is that, you know, this isn't just, you know, at least in the cases of the people named, this isn't just, you know, wealthy celebrities shilling a product. There are a series of relationships behind all of this that actually make it allegedly a higher degree of fraud. And so, you know, the allegation is that there's this talent manager who's a partner in this company that was promoting the board yacht NFT. He's kind of the middleman, And so, you know, there's uh, there's even more going on here or there was even more going on here uh, that meets the eye. Now, NFTs are one of those things that fascinate me. I've had a fascination for a while now with, I don't know, kind of Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley adjacent scams and and fraud. NFTs, I think, are particularly interesting in this regard, because, you know, if you think about very high profile recent cases of, uh, you know, Silicon Valley malfeasance, I mean, Elizabeth Holmes, right, her trial just concluded. I mean, You know, say what you want about Elizabeth Holmes. You know what she was trying to pretend she had was something that actually like defied the laws of physics. You know, there was a contention, obviously a a bullshit contention, that Theranos had actually invented something pretty innovative. NFTs are absolutely fascinating to me because you know just the idea that they were able—they've been able to convince people. You know, some people have been convinced that these glorified JPEGs. I mean, these like digital Pokemon cards are actually worth millions of dollars that there's this you know burgeoning market you know that if you if you get in on the ground floor you know you're going to make a ton of money you're going to be part of an exclusive club etc cetera, etc cetera. it's pretty fascinating when uh, a scam is created out of thin air like that like when there's not even the pretense of some kind of great innovation going on although i suppose uh you know the proponents for nfts would say that you know they actually have all this potential for democratizing intellectual property or something like that anyway something that really struck struck me uh, going through, you know, I was wa- rewatching recently a bunch of the Super Bowl ads, a bunch of the promos that people did for NFTs, and something that recurs again and again, I mean, which is notable given the extensive role of celebrities in promoting all these these things and how uh, extensively celebrities have been recruited to promote them, is how much there's this kind of, I don't know, FOMO sales tactic that seems to have been used over and over again.
1: Well, I remember the Larry David commercial is structured around him like being the guy doubting. Various great men in history.
0: That's right. Uh, and actually, you know, the Matt Damon crypto commercial does something very similar. In his monologue, he says history is filled with almosts, with those who almost adventured, who almost achieved, but ultimately for them, it proved to be too much. Then there are others, the ones who embrace the moment and commit. And in these moments of truth, these men and women, these mere mortals, just like you and me, as they peer over the edge, they calm their minds and steel their nerves with four simple words that have been whispered by the intrepid since the time of the Romans. Fortune favors the brave. So note the turn of phrase there. Matt Damon was saying, you know, these were mere mortals, just like you and me. This is something that seems to run through a lot of the uh, comm strategy and the PR strategy around these things. There's this kind of ersatz, uh, you know, democratic quality to a lot of it. You know, you find the usual sort of Silicon Valley thing of like this extremely banal thing that's really just about commodifying something that hasn't been commodified in this way before. You know, yeah, this is actually uh, super avant-garde and innovative or whatever. You've got that, but then something that seems to run alongside that is all of this sort of uh, democratic messaging. Uh, After uh, his really weird uh, segment with Paris Hilton, uh, Jimmy Fallon tweeted out this hashtag, uh, promoting the clip, where the hashtag is, we're all going to make it. So, you know, what you have here, and, you know, there's lots of other examples of this, but what you have here is these incredibly wealthy, famous people basically hawking an extremely risky speculative investment that most people, uh, by definition, are going to lose money in, inviting everybody to join, you know, what's called a community that's a word that came up a number of times uh, in the in the Fallon Paris Hilton segment and it's like the community these people actually belong to is just you know the rich right and in the case of what this lawsuit is alleging I mean it's not just people who are incidentally rich and famous it's people who are being connected allegedly through the same network So really what's being hawked here, it is, you know, these digital currencies, uh, non-fungible tokens, etc. But the actual thing that's being promoted is the same narrative that's been at the root of American capitalism since the very beginning. I mean, suppose it's at the root of capitalism in general, but it's, I think, in the United States where this has most been turned into a civic religion, you know, which is basically this idea that, you know, no one is actually poor. Everyone is just a temporarily embarrassed millionaire. The only thing that is preventing you from joining the the exclusive club or whatever, from climbing the ladder, is that you just haven't taken the necessary risk and I don't know, I, regardless of the the outcome of this lawsuit and, you know, what's actually demonstrated or proven here, I mean, I tend to give celebrities a, uh, a pretty wide berth. I tend to not, like, criticize them too w- much. Well, they're,
1: they're better than us. They conquered a meritocratic <laughs> system. I mean, you got to hand it to them. I
0: mean, when
1: you see Jimmy Fallon on TV, it's like he worked to get there.
0: Yeah. Can you do an impression of Bob Dylan singing the Charles in Charge theme? I didn't <laughs> think so. But seriously, I, I mean, I don't really care that much if a celebrity, like, promotes, like, a t- Typical consumer product. You know, I really, I really don't care that much. With this, uh, with this kind of thing, there is something deeply and profoundly gross about it. If you remember last year I talked to that fellow Robert Fitzpatrick who's the expert on multi-level marketing schemes and and Ponzi schemes. He wrote this book called Ponzionomics that uh, you know if you're interested in pyramid schemes or just scams in general, I'd recommend checking that out. But one of the things he talked about is the way that multi-level marketing schemes often work on the basis of affinity fraud. So, you know, they often target particular demographics, particular communities and then they just spread through them like wildfire because, you know, if a community is anything, it's a network of trust. People people who might otherwise be immune to something that's obviously a scam or a risky investment or, you know, otherwise dodgy are more likely to have their defenses down if they're talking to someone they know or trust. And I think that's where celebrities clearly played a really important role in the promotion of all of these things. I don't think you get uh, the crypto boom. I don't think you get the NFT boom. If so many people, uh, you know, many of them from, you know, like the liberal wing of Hollywood, which is itself interesting, if these people had not been you know so willing to uh, to show for these things. I really don't think they ever could have attained the legitimacy that they did. Anyway, I'll be following this lawsuit closely, and I will, uh, we'll likely talk about it again in the future.
1: Well, as a proud Bitcoin 2Gen shareholder, I'm excited to introduce the main topic for this week. April 20th, 1991, a day that lives in infamy. Martial artist, movie star, writer, director, musician, activist, entrepreneur, energy drink mogul former deputy sheriff for Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, (laughs) and as of now, Russia's special envoy to the United States, Steven Seagal, hosted Saturday Night Live for the first and only time. Uh, That's right. We're picking some low-hanging fruit on this episode. We're talking (laughs) about the episode that is widely considered, uh, if not the worst episode of SNL, then, then at least the worst host. Uh, So uh, live from New York, ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Seagal. So I'll just say, you know, I'm an SNL super fan in the sense that I've seen (laughs) virtually every episode of it from 1975 (laughs) to the mid 2000s. It was on every day after school on the Comedy Network when I was a kid. So I just saw all of it basically within the span of like a year and a half including this episode. I vividly remember watching this episode on TV when I was like nine or 10 years old.
0: Well, so you must have watched it as a rerun then. Correct.
1: I, w- I was not alive in 1975. I didn't I didn't see uh, the Ralph Nader hosted episode or the Milton Berle hosted episode in their original <laughs> runs, but, but I did catch them both on the Comedy Network much later on.
0: And did you catch the Seagal episode? The first episode I saw
1: when it aired was... Nineteen ninety six, Jim Carrey hosting, which was a—I mean, at age seven, I was—it was just like comedy Nirvana to me, watching Jim Carrey host that show. <laughs> and as an SNL super fan, I—I I mean, I'm—I'm I'm much more interested, really, in SNL lore than I am in the show itself. Um, there's a book called Live from New York that's this big doorstop-sized oral history of the show by Tom Shales that has interviews with, you know, every cast member, everyone. And the consensus in that book among anyone who was working on the show at the time is Stephen Segal was the worst host. And if you go on YouTube, you can look up any number of clips of cast members, writers, sharing horror stories of working with Segal. I'll just read a quick thing that Uh, the cast member Tim Meadows said in that book. He said, The biggest problem with Steven Seagal was that he would complain about jokes he didn't get. So it was like, You can't explain something to somebody in German if they don't speak German. He just wasn't funny, and he was very critical of the cast and writing staff. He didn't realize that you can't tell somebody they're stupid on Wednesday and expect them to continue writing for you on Saturday. There's also a story in the book and I saw a disgraced Senator Al Franken say it in a YouTube video as well that Segal would like pitch ideas for sketches um, and one of his ideas was and and I'm sorry this is quite a this is quite an upsetting <laughs> sketch idea. He said he wanted to do a sketch where he played a psychiatrist who hypnotizes a woman and then has sex with her while she's under hypnosis And then when she comes back into consciousness, he says, you've got to come back every week. That was one of Seagal's ideas for a comedy sketch, which if you know anything about Steven Segal's personal life, um, you know, not a huge surprise he would pitch an idea like that. So that that's the caliber of man we're dealing with. Watching this episode again, first of all, I was kind of surprised by how little of Steven Seagal is in it. They keep him off screen for as much as possible. There are two very long sketches involving pretty much the entire cast that rest heavily on celebrity impersonations that feel like exercises in how can we create as much of this show as possible without Steven Seagal in it. What particularly struck me was just this episode is an amazing time capsule of something from 1991. You know, this show is ephemeral by design. Obviously, over the course of 50 years, there are sketches that have gone down as classics. But if you watch any episode, watching any episode from the run of the show is like watching something in a different language. You know, the cultural references are so of the moment. The context that made things funny, if they were indeed funny at the time, is gone. <laughs> <laughs> so it it's just, it's just kind of a peculiar experience. There's maybe two funny minutes in this entire episode.
0: I have to say, I laughed exactly once. And it's a scene where... Uh, it it has Steven Seagal and Chris Farley and someone else, and I don't even remember what the setup was. Deadly. Uh, but a deadly woman's...
1: sketch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but but the actress who's in the scene, you know, says to Chris Farley something about like, "Oh, that's okay. I'm sure your I'm sure your mom is beautiful in other ways." And then there's a pause, and he says, "No." <laughs> that was the only thing that I found funny and honestly it's all relative because I did not laugh once throughout the rest of the episode. I do think we should probably do a little more work to justify why on earth we're talking about this at all apart from the uh the nakedly cynical reason of uh you know just needing to produce content for this hamster wheel of a podcast that we've uh, shackled ourselves to. You know there are times on this podcast where we watch art films, there are times when we talk about things that are very uh, relevant and pressing uh, uh, in the news, there are things that are old but actually, uh, you know, are made relevant or made relevant again because of things that are going on. Uh, and then there's stuff like this, which you know, uh, you know, you don't so much watch an episode of SNL from 1991 as just sort of experience it. And to me, watching something like this is basically just an experiment. It's like, what's it like to be transported back to 1991? And I mean, Will's right. It is an incredible time capsule. You know, there's a a few uh, very uh, not funny references to the first Gulf War. I mean, the Weekend
1: Update news segment with Dennis Miller is just a treasure trove of 1991 references. There are jokes about Kitty Kelly's biography of Nancy Reagan. There's a really lame (laughs) joke about Rodney King. There's a sketch with... With Chris Rock, a young Chris Rock, playing a black nationalist talk show host, Nat X, which I think was Chris Rock's only recurring character during his time on the show, which the premise of it is basically, uh, imagine if a black person had a talk show, you know, that's the 1991 of it all. I mean, that would not be that would not be a very compelling (laughs) premise now. But at the time, it was considered so funny that he got to do it in show after show after show.
0: So cards on the table, unlike well, I'm not an SNL head. SNL was not on TV. Where I grew up, I had like three channels. None of them had SNL. I used to see them at my local blockbuster where they'd have those things where it was like the best of Dana Carvey, the best of Chris Farley, whatever. And I think because of that, I had a vague sense that like, you know, like that, that was the first time as a kid where I sort of uh, was exposed to the idea that. Classic sketch comedy is like a form of literature or whatever, uh, but beyond that, I don't really have much of a relationship with SNL. So I think that made uh, watching this even more illegible for me <laughs> than it did for Will. Like the whole time, I was just sitting there trying to put myself in the headspace of someone in 1991 who would enjoy this, uh, or who could, or who would even uh, like understand it. And I found myself uh, very rarely uh, able to do so. It just, it just did not scan for me at all, and it made me wonder. Just just as an aside given the kind of accelerated pace of culture today as opposed to in 1991 imagine you know a version of our podcast i don't know uh, 35 years from now uh, where people are looking back at like you know memes from 2022 or imagine you know people watching the jimmy fallon paris hilton board ape segment imagine how completely illegible that is going to be yes i found this very difficult to understand Yes, I did not find this funny or even uh, really legible. But I want to put to you that in 20 or 30 years, you know, the culture as it exists now is just going to be completely opaque to people of future generations.
1: I think there's something to that. So in that spirit, let's try to be gentle to Dana Carvey. Let's try to be gentle to Kevin (laughs) Nealon and the whole gang uh, and and try to (laughs) try to give them the benefit of the doubt that perhaps some of this was funny in 1991. Um, Well, uh, I'll I'll
0: tell you what's definitely very funny is Dana Carvey. Harvey's uh, excellent and biting uh, <laughs> George H. W. Bush, uh, oh, his his satirical impression, which you know I've seen that a number of times. I think we talked about it on the show before because, like, didn't he do like a tribute or something? Didn't he do it again, like in the last few years?
1: I mean, maybe I know he did it for George H. W. Bush himself at the White House in the waning days of his administration. Well, this episode comes out guns ablazing right out of the gate because the bootleg copy that we watched on archive.org like it was taped off TV in 1991 and it opens with like a message from Dana Carvey that was recorded for whatever NBC affiliate this was taped off of like I know NBC Oklahoma or something and it's just Dana Carvey without makeup sitting in a chair being like well hey there it's a uh, George Bush uh, wouldn't be prudent uh be sure to be sure to watch uh WNBC Oklahoma wouldn't be prudent you know just he's not even dressed up as the character he's just like saying buzzwords
0: <laughs> well i i remember when we talked about this it was when george hw bush died and dana carvey wrote a thing in the new york times about how decent he was or whatever <laughs> and about how the great thing about his uh impression of george hw bush is that you know george hw bush actually liked it because you know there was nothing malicious so That's dana right. carvey was patting himself on the back that you know like, the great thing about my impre- my satirical impression is that it, it was so utterly toothless as satire that the powerful guy it was making fun of uh, actually liked it. And yeah, as far as I can tell, it did not really extend beyond the catchphrase, uh, Wouldn't wouldn't be prudent. So
1: to what you were saying earlier, I do think the difference between us is a lot of this show is more legible to me than it is to you. And I think... Case in point, the first sketch of the evening, the Hans and Franz cold open. So I'm going to try to explain this to you in a way that hopefully you and everyone can understand.
0: Yeah, there's you know, there's a lot. There's a lot of levels to this joke. I, I hope you're, uh, <laughs> you're up to the task of explaining it for the listeners. So Hans and Franz were one of the most
1: popular or two of the most popular characters on the show of the time. Uh, they were played by Dana Carvey and Kevin Nealon, and they were two uh, muscle men. The actors wore padding under their sweatshirts. Uh, and they spoke in really bad Austrian accents, and their heroes were Arnold Schwarzenegger. And on every sketch, every epi- they were on practically every episode at this time, <laughs> they'd say, "I via Hans via
0: Franz, and we want to pump you up." Okay, you are. I need to. I need to interrupt you because you're actually blowing my mind just already with this detail right out of the gate. You're telling me, you're sharing with me that these were recurring characters because watching this, I just assumed. Like, you know, like they did this whole bit because like it's a setup to, you know, Steven Seagal, you know, this like comparison between Arnold and Steven Seagal so that Steven Seagal can boast about how he could beat up Arnold or whatever. And instead, you're telling me that they came out and did this shtick like, like weekly. I mean, there's... (laughs) I feel like the characters are not uh, as fully fleshed out as they might might otherwise have been.
1: Well, what do you need to know? Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was at the height of his popularity at the time. This was the year of Terminator 2. Arnold was everywhere. And so these guys, you see, they they idolize Arnold. They talk like Arnold because he's got an Austrian accent, which is very funny. But they're also like kind of dumb. So that that's kind of the premise. They're Arnold fans who are dumb and talk like him. Now, The setup for this sketch is they're, you know, they're doing their usual thing. They're talking about how much they love Arnold, how much they love bodybuilding. Then they start talking about some of the other action stars. They start talking about that wimp, Steven Seagal, with his little ponytail and his little arms. And who should sneak up from behind but Steven Seagal himself? Look, fellas, let's not confuse the issue here. I don't want to compare myself to these other stars. They're great and everything
0: like that. But what I do is unique. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I got a point. Yeah. See, um,. I follow Zen. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. We know Zen. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that's right. First we lift the barbell, then we lift another. Yeah, then another. Oh. Then another. Yeah, and then we are done.
1: Now, uh, some of the lore behind this is that Seagal really had to be talked into this sketch. He was deeply offended by the premise of these guys saying that Arnold Schwarzenegger could beat him up. Uh, there are interviews with cast members and writers saying that he would mope when this was being rehearsed, saying if Arnold was here, I'd kick his fucking ass. Originally, the sketch was going to be that Hans and Franz beat Steven Seagal up, but it had to be written so that he comes in and he sort of he sort of shows them, he sort of shows them how strong he is, and they have to apologize. So an already weak premise what if the two wacky muscle guys beat up at Action Star is rendered even weaker by just having the Action Star be cool and not doing anything self-deprecating. So this sketch is incredibly rich. There's just so much going on here. This is something for the time capsule. Now, as for Steven Seagal, I mean, throughout the show, he makes... A number of appearances. He's a very awkward uh, stage presence. He fumbles over his cue cards many times. My favorite bit in the whole episode is there's an action movie spoof early on right after the monologue where it eventually leads into him beating up Rob Schneider as the making copies guy. That was another recurring character on the show. Making copies. He's a guy. (laughs) Okay, I have to explain this. Rob Schneider (laughs) played a guy who was at an office Okay, and people would go use the copy machine and he'd be like, hey, it's Rich, the Richmeister making copies, making copies, the Richmeister. That's basically what he would do. The archetype was that annoying guy at your office who's annoying you. So that was a sketch that was like, they did 20 of these.
0: Another another very multifaceted character.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the premises are easy to explain, but why it was supposed to be funny is much harder to explain. Anyway, the premise of the sketch is that this character meets uh, Steven Seagal, and he's in a Steven Seagal action movie. And there's one bit in this that I think is so funny where Phil Hartman's playing like the chief of police. Now I've got the ACLU up my behind and the DA has to throw out these indictments. I caught these two guys with three kilos of cocaine. What do you think they were doing with a making chalk for girls softball games? What do you think they were doing with a making chalk for girls softball games? The delivery of that, just beautiful. My other favorite Seagal appearance in this is in the Nat X sketch that's chris rock as the black nationalist talk show host um, again, that's the whole premise of the sketch. Uh, Seagal appears as Andrew Dice Clay. And I don't know any of the lore behind this, but you can just tell. They had Steven Seagal in the office and they are like, well, well, what can we do with this guy? What can we possibly do with... what's a, Who's a celebrity who looks and sounds kind of like Seagal that he's really not going to have to do any work to master? Well, Andrew Dice Clay. So the whole premise of Andrew Dice Clay being on this like black nationalist talk show is is never quite convincingly elusive uh and it's played by seagal who's like stumbling over his cue cards and not delivering the timing of any line there are like awkward pauses between his dialogue and chris rock's dialogue and there's just this like eerie silence that hangs over the sketch (laughs) so what's up next for the dice man you got a movie coming out this summer no (laughs) how about next summer
0: no but i'm amazing anyway just because i treat the chicks like the pigs that they are so are you going to go see a movie? Hey, I ain't seen you any movies and what's the afro anyway? You look like Link from the Mod Squad. <laughs> uh. Oh, it's 1991. You know, why don't you cut it square? Bada-bing. <laughs> oh. Uh.
1: All right, cracker boy. Some other sketches worth noting. Uh, there's a We Are the Worlds parody for uh, free range chickens. Uh, this is just an excuse for the cast to like impersonate various pop singers. You know, Mike Myers as Mick Jagger, that kind of thing.
0: So I was absolutely fascinated by the sketch because I kept looking for like what the other level is that I'm <laughs> supposed to find funny. And it really just seems like the formula for comedy here is that, you know, you have a bunch of famous late night comedians and then you just have like the raw material of culture you have like okay uh celebrity charity videos that's a thing let's riff on that and then the result is just like what if there was like a we are the world video but then they're singing about free-range chickens for some reason And the sketch never gets beyond that. Like, it's not so much comedy as it is just a kind of cultural mashup that I guess is just inherently funny to some people. Or maybe, like, maybe it was funny in 1991. I don't know. Comedy is very context-specific. Well, getting back
1: to the Hans and Franz bit, I mean, maybe it was funnier in a time when, like, to do an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression now is not very funny. We've had... 40 maybe almost 50 years of arnold schwarzenegger impressions at this point he's a very familiar cultural icon and more to the point he's not a relevant cultural icon anymore it's been a long time since he's been in the in the popular consciousness but at the time everyone was going to see arnold schwarzenegger movies arnold schwarzenegger was in the air and therefore to reference him his ubiquity did a lot of the work Um, I think it's the same with George H.W. Bush as well.
0: I mean, it seems to be the same impulse that exists today in relation to SNL, where some people find it very funny... You know, you have like you have the news and that's very serious. And, you you know, you watch you watch the news, you find out what's going on. And it's like, what if people like did the news, but in silly voices? And for some people, that is just like the funniest thing in the world. And uh, that is as elusive to me today, watching SNL today, as it is watching an episode of it from 1991. I mean, I just I just don't get it.
1: I do think something that has changed. And I don't know if there's one reason for this. Maybe social media has something to do with it. There's more of an expectation for SNL and for other comedy shows that they they take a stand more. There's more of an expectation that comedy be used in the service of good <laughs> or used righteously, which I don't think was the case here, right? Well, like,
0: well and that's useful to think about today because I think, you know, a lot of us like to think, you know, comedy isn't funny anymore because it's just, you know, on the right, it's just people complaining about cancel culture or talking about how millennials, you know, want to use their... Uh, Uh, I don't know, their their gender degrees to buy uh, pumpkin spice lattes or whatever it is. And, you know, then on the other side, it's just, you know, Libs complaining about Donald Trump or whatever. And we think, well, remember when comedy wasn't didactic, when it was just more spontaneous and random and unmoored uh, from one side or the other of the cultural divide? Wouldn't that be a lot funnier? And you watch this, it's like, Wouldn't be prudent. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Not gonna do it.
0: (laughs) I mean, you say that Seagal isn't in this very much, but I mean, the moments that he is in are pretty memorable. And I mean, you know, I've said throughout this discussion that, you know, I find the comedy in 1990s SNL kind of illegible. I think Steven Seagal just finds the idea of comedy illegible. (laughs) Like, it doesn't seem like he's able to process the idea that he's supposed to be in character. You know, you talked about the Pons and Franz sketch or whatever that he made them rewrite. And I mean, so many of the moments Moments he appears in this episode the joke is like what if Steven Seagal was a badass like there's no <laughs> there's no joke What if Steven Seagal was a tough guy who beat people up? Uh, And in his monologue at the beginning, where he's kind of introducing himself and he says, my movies are not just about action. And I like to explore the mythical poet and the warrior that's all but vanished in modern society. The relationship between man and God, the struggle of the common man against politically corrupt systems. And he just delivers that completely deadpan uh, and then starts noodling on the guitar to the tune of Everybody Loves Kung Fu Fighting. (laughs) And again, the rendition is like, you know like a silly rendition but i don't think Seagull sees it that way like he wants us to watch it and be like wow steven seagal like he's this kick-ass guy he can beat up anyone he can beat up arnold schwarzenegger uh, and he's hosting snl and he was in the cia and he can wail on the guitar like that's the only level that exists here for Seagull.
1: Well, I think the last sketch that we should address on that note is the, oh, la- it, it, is the last sketch of the evening, which I mean, what you got to understand watching this episode is that every sketch involving Segal was clearly a complex negotiation that led to this point. Because yeah, none of them poke any fun at him. You know, the, the one that you alluded to earlier of him as like, you know, the girl's dad and Chris Farley is going to take her on a date and he's just a badass around Chris Farley. It's all that. It's just, yeah, what if Steve steven seagal was a badass well apparently the last sketch of the evening buried in the five minutes to one slot is just a pastiche of a steven seagal action movie with no jokes actually
0: <laughs> the character is, the character is brace steel as greenpeace photographer i think that's the name of the sketch and i mean the premise of this one is that exxon uh folks they're they're polluting the planet they're, they're bad to the environment. And uh, Steven Seagal is an intrepid but also uh, extremely tough and high tea Greenpeace photographer who, would you believe it, is actually prepared to defy uh, the mantra of nonviolence that you think a guy in his uh, position uh, should adhere to. Gentlemen, good news. The judges just reduced our fine for the Alaskan spill from $2 billion to $160 payable in... Easy installment. What? <laughs> That's right, Steele. You heard me. $160. Oh, don't worry. It'll be reduced on appeal. <laughs> now that makes me violent.
1: <laughs> this is
0: what happens when you pollute the planets.
1: I'm not convinced there is a joke in this sketch. I know that this was a sketch that he basically you know, mostly wrote himself and insisted beyond the show. Uh, By all accounts, this was a command performance. But is the joke supposed to be that he's a photographer, that he's a Greenpeace photographer? Like, is that considered not an alpha uh, profession for him to have? Because I know I I can imagine a Steven Seagal action movie where he plays a Greenpeace photographer. I mean, it's it's a a genuinely indistinguishable premise from like On Deadly Ground or something like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd honestly be astonished if such a movie didn't already exist i <laughs> And I mean, this is the thing that is so, I don't know, weirdly fascinating about Steven Seagal. I think it's why, you know, despite being such a horrible man and such a horrible actor, you know, there is something just weirdly compelling about him. And it is that no matter how crappy the movie he's in, no matter how implausible uh, his self-presentation is, uh, no matter how, as in the case of this episode, no matter how unfunny he is, he just never deviates from the most intensely self-serious presentation. And I mean, this has gotten funnier and funnier. I mean, it's already funny in 1991 because when Seagal uh, had his action breakthrough like you know he was already what in his like he's older than we are like he wasn't like a young guy Uh, (laughs) and then like today he's just doing the same thing like the the premise of every Steven Seagal movie is like oh there's a there's a problem in the world somewhere you know there's a dictator who's getting some depleted uranium from Kazakhstan to blow up the Amazon or something and there's only one man for the job and it's you know it's a top special forces guy who uh, he got out of the game and he retired because you know he's fed up with the corruption but we got to bring him back and it's like then you see Seagal and it's like, how old is he now? He must be in—he must like be in his sixties or something. And it's like he can barely pull off the like alpha, irresistible to women, like tough guy shtick. Like when this SNL sketch came out, and like now he's still doing the exact same shtick. But you're looking at a man who looks like he's seventy-five if he's a day.
1: If I can say one thing in semi-defense of Steven Seagal, it's that in that first run of like five movies. Basically, up to and including the point that he did this episode, there was a reason he was famous. And, you know, time has revealed a lot of that to be fraudulent. But, but at the time, nobody else has this screen presence. Nobody else talks this way. Nobody else moves his body this way. Nobody else talks in this particular monotone and like wears his hair this way and as you said, is as self-serious. Those first couple of movies when he can still sort of move, it is weirdly compelling. If you watch Above the Law, if you watch if you watch Hard to Kill and you try to push out of your mind the image of him like eating carrots in Russia, or you know, the image of (laughs) the image of him in like Serbia doing those fake kung fu demonstrations (laughs) where like students come up to him and they pretend to be knocked out by him. If you can put that out of your mind there's like there's something there it's wholly unique there there is a weird charisma to it
0: a charisma which i would argue does not shine through on this episode of snl we watched If people are
1: interested in this episode, and you should be, everyone should watch this episode at least once, the most compelling part of it is the good nights at the end. And this is the part of the episode that I've watched many times, like the Zapruder film. You know, if you've seen SNL, you know that it always ends with the hosts surrounded by the cast, you know, thanks everyone. You know, it's been a great week. Uh, See you next time. And then everybody like hugs and shakes hands. Just watch this, you know, watch it frame by frame. Watch the looks on the faces of Rob Schneider and David Spade and, and Tim Meadows and all these people as they're as they're shaking hands with him and also just look at Steven Seagal's body in relation to all these people like he's a genuinely like enormous man and he genuinely moves his body in a way that that like a human being doesn't
0: well, I mean, you mentioned there was something real. I mean, none other than Seagal himself told the L.A. Times in 1988, uh, <laughs> you can say that I lived in Asia for a long time, and in Japan I became close to several CIA agents, and you could say that I became an advisor to several CIA agents in the field, and through my <laughs> friends in the CIA, met many powerful people and did special works and special favors.
1: This is what happens when you pollute the planet. Everybody was kung <laughs> to fight) This is lightning it was a little bit frightening they were going with expert timing well there was a funky china man funky china town they were chopping them up chopping them down there was funky billy chin and little Sammy Chung. a little
0: bit We got a real great show tonight. Michael Bolton's here. We'll be right back.